Let's pray one more time and ask God to help us today. Heavenly Father, we love you. And we love your Son. And what we need to hear today isn't someone talking, another man talking, another face talking about something. We need to hear the voice of the living God. We need you to speak into our lives through your word, Father God, um, truths that can shape how we deal with our lives where they are currently, with the world the way it is currently, Father God. We need you to take the reality of the resurrection, which is what Easter is all about, and to infiltrate our hearts past every defense, every barrier, every impediment in us, and grant to us to see with clarity the reality of the hope of the resurrection. We need to see that today, of all days, in this season of all seasons, Father God, we ask it in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Now, as they were eating, Jesus took the bread and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them saying, drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. And then Jesus said to them, You will all fall away because of me this night. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Peter answered him, Though they all fall away because of you, I will never fall away. And Jesus said to him, Truly I tell you, this very night, before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. Peter said to him, even if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And all the disciples said the same thing. That was Matthew uh, 26, verses 26 through 35. And we all know this story. Um, and we know that despite what Peter and the disciples have said right here, it's not going to end the way that they think it is. This night is not going to end how they had planned it to end. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took a bread, piece of bread and um, a cup, and he shares it with his disciples at this table. And he shows them in this scene precisely how he was going to usher in his father's kingdom, his kingdom, how he's going to bring it into the world. He was going to die. That's how this was going to happen. That's what it means when you take a piece of bread and say, this is my body, and then you break it. That's what it means when you take a cup and you pour it out and say, this is my blood. He was going to die. Jesus was going to die, which is why his disciples are so resistant to this idea that it, if it came down to it, they would scatter from him. They find it preposterous. They honestly believe that if, if someone were to strike this shepherd, they're going to stick around till the very end. 
But of course, you know that doesn't happen. Um, in the garden, Jesus is betrayed by one of his own disciples, Judas, and a multitude of fully armed, well-trained soldiers comes marching in to arrest him. And they all, all of his disciples, end up leaving him. And while Peter, in that first moment, in that encounter in the garden, is very zealous at the beginning, he strikes the servant of the high priest with his sword, he's so zealous. When he realizes, though, as the other disciples do, that Jesus isn't going to fight back. When, he, when that crashes in on him, that their rabbi, their teacher, their friend, the king of Israel, Jesus, isn't going to defend himself, but he's going to allow himself to be arrested. When that dawns on him, the response of the disciples is unsurprising. In Matthew 26, verse 56, it says, Then all the disciples left him and fled. Strike the sheep, strike the shepherd, and the sheep will scatter. This night was not going to end at all like they thought it was. And after this night, nothing would ever be the same. Nothing. And so if you have your Bibles, please take them um, and turn with me to Matthew 26, verse 57, which are going to take us to the events immediately after the scene we just looked at. Matthew 26, verse 57. And it, this these events that we're about to look at here may feel like, as we're going through them, kind of unlikely as a, an Easter passage. But I, I, wanna, I want you to hold on to the fact that this is something profound to tell us, not only about the hope of Easter, but really in the face of, of what all of the world is facing right now. The present crisis that we're in, this passage has something powerful to tell us about that. And so I'm grateful for God's sovereignty and providence in directing this passage long before there was any uh, pandemic. And so I pray that it encourages you. Let's start with verse 57. We're going to read through this passage and then stop after unpacking a few verses and then continue. So verse 57 says this, Then those who had seized Jesus led him to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the scribes and the elders had gathered. And Peter was following him at a distance as far as the courtyard of the high priest. And going inside, he, Peter, sat with the guards to see the end. To see the end. So after his arrest, Jesus is brought to the house of the high priest Caiaphas. And the scribes and elders have all gathered here in the middle of the night for this trial that is going to be held for Jesus. And it says here that Peter ends up following Jesus. He follows him at a distance, and that's important to see here. That's as close as he's going to be to Jesus right now. Uh, and the reason why is Peter is afraid for his life. Peter is scared, and we know why, because we know the story, what happens to Peter later. And we're going to get to that in, in a bit, but right here, it says he sits down in the courtyard, and he's going to watch this play out. He goes there, it says, to see the end, verse 58, the end. That word end in Greek is telos, and what it means is, uh, it can mean outcome, it can mean goal, but literally, the ESV translates it here as the word end, and that's the actual word in Greek. And I think this is a, a wise rendering. 
because it reflects the finality of what's going on here, what Peter is watching. Think about what, the, what must have been going through his mind in this moment. He spent three years following Jesus. Three years of his life, he was committed to this man. And even in the garden moments earlier, just as a picture of his zealousness for Jesus, he wasn't just a, a ready to die for this man. He nearly killed a, another person for this man. And yet all of that courage was unraveling right now for Peter. And the last three years of his life were coming to a close. He sat down to see the end. And so what is the end going to look like? Well, let's continue. Verse 59. Now the chief priest and the whole council were seeking false testimony against Jesus that they might put him to death. But they found None, though many false witnesses came forward. So there's no confusion about what's going on here. These men want Jesus dead. <clears throat> they absolutely despise Jesus. In fact, in, and we see this throughout all of the Gospels. In John 11, probably the most succinct and specific, it says that he threatened, Jesus threatened their power and their authority and their position um, over Israel. They did not want Jesus as their king. They didn't want Jesus in their lives at all. They hated him. And when you read the Gospels, this is not a shocking thing. There's no mystery why uh, they had an issue with Jesus. He would fearlessly call them out as hypocrites, as whitewashed tombs, as he even calls them children of hell at one point. So Jesus didn't play around with these religious leaders and they wanted him silenced. They wanted him to be quiet. And we see here that they would do anything to make that happen. I mean, they're seeking false witnesses here um, in order to kill this man. In other words, they're not interested in, in, a, in a fair trial or due process. They want someone to lie about him. And they need two witnesses who can corroborate this lie. But it says here, even even then, they can't seem to pull this off. They can't seem to do it. They are struggling to find two people who can even lie in the same way about Jesus, which must tell them at some level that this man is innocent if they have to fabricate his crime, and they still struggle to do that. But they do end up succeeding. Verse 60 says, At last two came forward and said, This man said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and rebuild it in three days. So this is the testimony that they have, that Jesus said he is able to destroy God's temple and rebuild it in three days. They claim that Jesus said this, and they've got two guys who can corroborate it. So now they've got witnesses. Now the event that they're referring to is a real event. This actually did happen. Um, it didn't happen in the book of Matthew, and it doesn't happen in, in the other synoptic gospels, Mark and Luke either. It actually happens in the book of John. And in a few weeks, we're actually going to get to the scene that they're referencing here. John 2 um, is where it shows up. And it's a statement that Jesus made, but has been twisted. And we'll see it here in a second. It happens at the beginning of his ministry. Jesus enters the temple. And you remember this, he takes a whip with them and he clears out the money changers and he overthrows their table and he tells them to get out of there. They've turned his father's house into a house of trade. And their response to him then is to demand a sign. They want some evidence 
for why you're stopping our business here. And we see that in John 2, 18. It says, so the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, it it has taken us 46 years to build this temple. And will you raise it up in three days? But he, Jesus, was speaking about the temple of his body. So this is the statement that these false witnesses have brought together. They've twisted it into something else. Jesus here doesn't say that he's going to destroy the temple of God. He doesn't say that. He tells them that they're going to destroy it. And John tells us that he's not referring to the physical temple that he's standing in. He's referring to his body, the the physical temple of his body, which is very ironic when you think about this. This is what they're, this is the testimony that they bring to this trial. Jesus in this moment, three years earlier, is prophesying about his death. And it's a prophecy about the very thing that they're trying to do to him on this trial. They're trying to kill him. And they bring up this statement from him, and they are unknowingly fulfilling the promise that Jesus has made by twisting it. And so what is Jesus going to do? How is he going to respond to this false accusation? Well, verse 62 tells us, says, And the high priest stood up and said, Have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But it says, Jesus remained silent. So Jesus' defense to this accusation, this false accusation, is silence. He doesn't say a word. Now, why? Why doesn't he say anything in response to this? Why doesn't he clear this up? And even more than that, what must be going through Peter's mind right now? He's looking at this play out. He's watching the end. If Jesus doesn't say something, he's going to be killed. And Jesus is supposed to be the promised Messiah. He, he, he's supposed to usher in a kingdom for God's people, not be on trial for a crime he never committed. And yet Jesus here remains silent. And so what must be going through Peter's mind? Well, what Peter doesn't realize is that what is happening right now by Jesus being silent, what is happening in front of Peter's eyes isn't a deviation from the plan. It's exactly how this king is supposed to come according to the prophet Isaiah 700 years earlier. Isaiah 53, 7 says, He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that is before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. This is Jesus that Isaiah is talking about. This is Jesus. Jesus is the lamb of Isaiah 53. He is the servant who is being led to the slaughter and yet doesn't open his mouth. Jesus is the one. And Peter, although he doesn't understand this now, he will understand it eventually. We know this because in 1 Peter 1, he refers to Jesus as the lamb without spot or blemish. Jesus is the picture of the perfect sacrifice in this lamb. Despite, and despite all that he's, he's told the disciples, including Peter, about how he's going to be a sacrifice, all these indicators he gave, Peter still struggles with 
this idea that the Messiah, that Jesus was going to have to die, he struggles with that, that the Christ is actually going to be a sacrifice. This is hard for him to understand, but Jesus' silence here seals the deal, and it ignites another question from the high priest. The question that he asks here isn't just a, a random question. It is actually the question about Jesus. Verse 63 and 64 say, And the high priest said to him, said to Jesus, I adjure you by the living God, tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. Jesus said to him, You have said so, but I tell you, from now on you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. So now here in this scene, the high priest demands that Jesus confess whether or not he's the Christ, whether or not he's this king, the Son of God, that had been prophesied and foretold of by the prophets. And Jesus responds with, you have said so, which is very interesting and telling. Because what it means is, the very reason that you ask me this question proves that you know who I am. You have all the evidence that you need to know the truth. And so your question has become an admission. In fact, the very reason that they desire to kill him in this moment is evidence that he's the one that's being foretold by the prophets. He's the spotless lamb who's going to be sacrificed for the sins of his people, despite being um, innocent. But Jesus doesn't stop here. He continues with this amazing, staggering line. He says, but I tell you, From now on, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven, which is not a random reference. That is not a random reference at all. It is a deeply profound statement about who Jesus is, who the Son of Man claimed to be. And that's who Jesus called, that's what Jesus called himself throughout his ministry. And so this passage is from, or this vision is from, a, this reference, I should say, is from a vision recorded in the book of Daniel. Daniel 7, 13 through 14. Listen to this. Daniel says, hundreds of years before Jesus is born, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man. And he came to the Ancient of Days, and he was presented before him, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve Him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and His kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. So this is Jesus' response to the high priest. He's saying, I am the one from Daniel 7. That's me. That's who I am. I am the one who is going to be seated at the right hand of the Ancient of Days, who will come with full authority on the clouds of heaven. That's me. And Jesus uses this word uh, power to embody God here, which invokes this reality of God's sovereign, a limitless, unfettered authority over all things. God is sovereign over every molecule in the universe. Everything in created reality belongs to him. And Jesus, by sitting at the right hand of this power, it means that all of that authority has been conferred to him. All of it belongs to him. Daniel says that the Son of Man is given 
dominion and glory and a kingdom that has every people and nation in the world in it. And they will all serve him in this kingdom, he says, will last for all eternity. It will never pass away and it will never be destroyed. Jesus is telling them, this is who I am. This is who I am. And the response of the high priest to Jesus' claim here is not surprising in the least at all. Listen to verse 65 of Matthew 26. Then the high priest tore his robes and said, He has uttered blasphemy. What further witnesses do we need? You have now heard his blasphemy. What is your judgment? They answered, He deserves death. And then they spit in his face and struck him. And some slapped him, saying, Prophesy to us, you Christ, who is it that struck you? And if we can like imagine Peter, who is watching this whole thing play out as they bludgeon Jesus and spit in his face, mocking him, humiliating him. What is going through Peter's mind right now? This is his teacher, his master. This is his friend. And this is supposed to be the king. And now he's going to be killed. And, and you know that these brutalities are only just the, the beginning. Um, it's going to get far worse than what Peter's seeing in this moment. Jesus will be beaten. He will be stripped. He will be scourged with whips. He will have a, a crown of thorns pressed into his skull. And then he will hang on a cross for six hours until he suffocates. For Peter, in this moment... This is the end. It's the end of everything he'd seen in the last three years of his life. It was over for him. All the hopes of Israel, all the hopes of his people had clung to this man, this Jesus of Nazareth, and they were gone. In that moment, they were gone. And we know this is what Peter thought because of what happens immediately after this. Before this evening is over, Jesus will do, or Peter will do just what Jesus said. He will deny Jesus three times just to avoid the same end. And then verse 75 tells us that after he does that, after he denies Jesus, his friend, his master, his king, verse 75 tells us Peter went out and wept bitterly. But what Peter doesn't realize in this darkest of all nights is that in Jesus' confession, he actually does show Peter the end. This isn't the end of Jesus' ministry on earth. This isn't the end of Jesus' life. Jesus' confession shows Peter the end of human history. The exaltation of Jesus Christ is seen in his confession. Remember what his confession was. From now on, you will see the Son of Man at the right hand of power, coming on the clouds of heaven. That's, that's the end. That's the real end here. The exaltation of Jesus Christ as the sovereign, risen king with power over every single thing in the universe. Seated at the right hand of his father, a kingdom that will never end. That's the end that Jesus showed Peter. 
But in order for Jesus to get to that eternal kingdom that belonged to him, in order for him to go to the throne of Daniel 7, where he was seated at the Ancient of Days, the right hand of power, he needed to be led to the slaughter. He needed to die on a cross. His body, like that bread at the table, needed to be broken. And his blood, like that cup, needed to be shed. And the reason why the cross must come before the throne is because of what Jesus said when he served his disciples the cup early. If you remember this, his words, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. This is why Jesus remained silent. This is why he held his tongue in the trial, because for us, for you and I, there is no kingdom ever if our sins remain unforgiven. There isn't. In order for us to be with him in this kingdom, in order for that to happen, he had to take all of our sin, all of the sin that we've committed against his father, and he had to pay its penalty on the cross. And what Peter needs to know more than anything in this moment is that the cross is not the end for Jesus. It's not the end. Remember what Jesus promised years earlier in the temple, the same thing they twisted to get his his conviction in this trial, his condemnation in this trial. Destroy this temple, and in three days, what will he do? I will raise it up. Jesus is not going to stay dead, Peter. He's not going to stay dead. He's going to rise, and then he's going to take his place on that throne at the right hand of power as the risen king of a kingdom that will be forever, will never, ever end. And here's why this is the greatest news for us today. Here's why this this is the greatest news for anyone who has faith in Christ Jesus. You and I are a part of this kingdom. We belong to this kingdom. We've been united with Jesus. We are united to the king. We belong to this kingdom. We are there with Jesus in Daniel 7. And the reason why is because of the death and and resurrection of Jesus Christ, every single obstacle, every single impediment and barrier between us and between us and the joy of this kingdom, all of that has been completely eradicated on the cross of Jesus Christ. All of it's been removed. There is no more obstacles. We belong to this kingdom. A kingdom that, and you need to hear me in this season, a kingdom that will have no more pain, no more suffering, no more worry, no more anxiety, and no more fear. It is a kingdom where death is ancient history. And there are no more tears. You don't cry anymore in this kingdom. That's what the cross and the empty tomb mean. That's what they mean for us. That through this extraordinary act of love and sacrifice, where Christ laid down his life for you, he has in that act dealt a fatal wound to death. Death died the day he rose. And so let me be real with you for a moment. I know this, this month has been hard for all of us. This month has been hard for much of the world. And I think we have, as uh, a planet globally, um, come face to face with the frailty of the human species. 
um, and, and our own mortality has really took center stage. And all because of this little microscopic moat that brings an entire world to its knees. So mankind in this part of human history is learning a hard lesson that we're not in charge. Um, and putting our hope in us and in what we can accomplish and what we can do is, is not the solution. I know people are saying that. It's not the solution. Hope in ourselves is what we were doing before this happened. And everyone in the world right now is a lot like Peter during that trial. Everyone in the world right now is waiting to see how this ends. How is this going to shake out? What's going to happen? And they're wondering, what is the end going to look like of the current season that we're in or whatever happens next? But I want you to hear me very clearly now. You and I don't need to worry about that ever because we know how it's going to end. He's already shown it to us three days after the cross. No matter what happens tomorrow, no matter what happens next week or next month or 10,000 years in the future, no matter what happens, this fact alone remains. We have a king who is willing to go to the, through the worst possible death one can experience so that one day he will carry us all into a kingdom where there is no such thing as death. And so as we continue in worship in the next few moments with um, music and, and singing and communion, the very act that we looked at at the beginning that, that displays and depicts the, the sacrifice of Jesus, I want to close with one more passage. This is a, a prayer from the Apostle Paul to the Ephesian church. And uh, this is important because it speaks about the hope that he is trying to get into their hearts a hope that is real and objective and true that they need to see. And here's the deal about this hope. And I, I really, I'm desperate for us, all of us at Risen Hope to feel this. This hope is real. It is real. It's more real than anything else in the world. It is real. And I want you to know this hope. I want you to feel this hope and embrace this hope. This isn't an abstract idea. This isn't a fairy tale that we've conjured up, that we're trying to use to delude what's going on in the world right now, this is an unshakable reality. It is an anchor for your soul in a, will, or a world that is filled to the brim with all sorts of hopes that will fail one day. This hope will never fail you, period. It is an invincible hope. And I, I'm just being real with you. This hope will allow you to weather every single storm in your life. It will allow you to endure any trial that you face until one day our risen king comes back for us and takes us up into his arms and brings us home to be with him forever. This hope will take you to that day. And I want to pray with Paul that we would see this hope and embrace it for what it really is. Ephesians 1. I pray that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give us in risen hope 
the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. That having the eyes of our hearts enlightened, that we might know what is the hope to which he has called us. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in us, his saints? And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe? According to the working of his great might that he worked, listen to this, in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and virus and economic concerns and human frailty and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. I'm desperate for all of us, myself included, to feel this reality today. Like We need this. We need this. And, and Risen Hope, I want you to, to see this. This hope that is found in the resurrection is the power of a very real risen king who loved you and gave himself for you. And one day he will come back for us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, it is an awesome thing to know that we worship a Savior who didn't just save us from a physical reality in this life, but he saved us for an eternal reality in the next. And that in that future hope that we cling to, that he will come one day and gather us to himself and usher in, in full consummation, his kingdom, a kingdom without pain and suffering, without crying, without tears, without anxiety and worry and concern, without viruses, Father God. That in that kingdom, Father God, because of what he did on the cross, we will be with him forever. I pray that we would know that, Lord, not just understand it intellectually. Anybody can do that. Help us to embrace it as the Apostle Paul prays for the church in Ephesus, that we would feel the reality of it come into our souls as the eyes of our hearts are enlightened to see the hope that you've called us to. I pray that this season, this Easter, Father God, and in the weeks to come, that you would make this real for us. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen.